Exodus chapter 7, we'll, uh, we address, we continue to address uh, this second book of God's Word as it expresses to us uh, the faithfulness of the Lord to His promises, specifically to His promises to Abraham to provide a people and a land, and even further in a greater way to provide a offspring of Abraham through whom all nations will be blessed, that they may also dwell in a greater and heavenly land. As we look at Exodus specifically, though, we see that uh, we find ourselves having the first trial with Pharaoh over and Moses and Aaron addressing with them the will of the Lord that he would let their people go. And, the, and seeing the intent of Pharaoh's heart is that he would harden himself to the will of God and not allow God's people to go and worship him, but even uh, conversely to punish them, to bring upon them a weight of more labor, to be an unjust ruler. But it wasn't just Pharaoh's hard heart. It was also the people's lack of faith that were on display. Not just Pharaoh and the people, but Moses and Aaron displayed their doubt of the Lord's faithfulness to his promises. And so we were left only with the Lord's character and decree to graciously save Israel out of Egypt. But we see the Lord's loving hand also upon Moses and Aaron where he corrects them and charges them anew to do his will. And so we have... Uh, such words in our uh, in chapter six, where it says Moses and Aaron did all that the Lord had commanded. Follow along as I read for us Exodus chapter seven, beginning in verse fourteen through verse twenty-five. Where the Lord says, "Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn; he refuses to let the people go." Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water and station yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. You shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened until now. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned to blood. The fish that are in the Nile will die, and the Nile will become foul, and the Egyptians will find difficulty in drinking water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their streams, and over their pools, and over all their reservoirs of water, that they may become blood. And there will be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded. And he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile, in the sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died. And the Nile became foul, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was through all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. 
Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, so they, so, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us go to him in prayer. O oh Lord, we give you praise this morning that you have given us your word so that we, your people, may not only be called by your name that have heard your gospel out of your word, but now we may be encouraged in it, knowing that contained in this Old Testament story are the riches of the gospel. And we may find in them waiting for us to, to be revealed to us. We may find waiting our Savior to reveal himself to us. And we may know him in a greater way this morning. And so not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. We ask these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Last week we addressed uh, the previous passage and we said that those who boast in the Lord's faithful and grace-filled action towards his people are those who rely upon his word and so have confidence or so have the confident to be brought safely into his heavenly kingdom. Well this morning we see the Lord continuing to express this but he we're going to go back a chapter to see how the Lord is answering Pharaoh when he asks boastfully this important question. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? He asked Moses and Aaron, uh, or Moses and Aaron came to him and said it was Yahweh, it was the Lord that was telling him to let his people go. And Pharaoh's response is, who is Yahweh? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. Who is the Lord? That is the question that Exodus and that the Lord takes 10 plagues to answer. If we want to know something about the Lord, we can look at these 10 plagues for they are a demonstration as to who he is. For us too then, our question then should be our concluding question we may have as we understand who the Lord is from these plagues is, Who is like our Lord? Who is like Yahweh? That is the question for us this morning as we address just this first plague that comes upon the land of Egypt. We'll do so by having a short introduction into the plagues, and then we'll look at this plague in particular and see its purpose, come to understand something about portion and prayer. Well, we can look at the plagues in total and come to many conclusions. And one will, two conclusions we'll look at are their arrangement and their manifold purpose. First, in their arrangement, we find that the tenth plague is, is set apart in the arrangement. So there's actually three threes that come to highlight the tenth plague. And so they form three divisions each division consisting of three plagues, and that these dividing lines are drawn by Scripture itself, they'll be plain when we note one remarkable feature. A warning proceeds in each instance. The first and second plagues, before the first and second plagues of each group of three, there's a warning. But with the third in each series, no warning 
is given. And so as each one of those are uh, tripleted together, uh, we find that they form uh, these sets of threes so that when we get to the tenth, they kind of all funnel into the tenth as we will see as we address the first plague this morning. But A.W. Pink recognizes that uh, there's a manifold purpose to these plagues, and he actually recognizes seven purposes. First, he says, they gave a public manifestation of the mighty power of the Lord God. Second, they were a divine visitation of wrath, a punishment of Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their cruel treatment of the Hebrews. Third, they were a judgment from God upon God's Uh, upon the gods or or the demons of Egypt. Fourth, they demonstrated that Jehovah was high above all gods. Fifth, they furnished a complete of man's utter inability and dependence, as well as God's utter omnipotence and independence or aseity. Sixth, they were a solemn warning to other nations that God would curse those who cursed the Israelites. As testified by Rahab in Joshua 2.10, she said, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites and who were at, that were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Finally, these plagues were meant to strengthen the people of God in knowledge of God, not just meant for the Egyptians, but also for the Israelites. It was for them to know better their covenant God. In Exodus chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 6, verse 2, we read, God spoke further to Moses and Aaron saying, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, by my name Lord, or by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourn. The Lord is saying there not that he wasn't, uh, that they didn't know the name Yahweh, for we see that appear many times in uh, the scriptures prior to this, and even the name, even Abraham and the patriarchs calling upon Yahweh as his name, but that they would know him in a greater way, that they would know him in a new way. So it's not that Yahweh has changed, but Obviously, it's that his creatures have changed and so that his knowledge may grow, their knowledge may grow greater of Yahweh. So as these plagues have these manifold purpose and this arrangement, we see that they culminate in this understanding that they should strengthen the people of God in knowledge of God. That they would know better their covenant God. We proclaim the whole counsel of the word of the Lord here. And so as we as I'm preaching through an Old Testament scripture, I don't, we're not going to preach it as if we're talking about a different God that we encounter in the New Covenant. For what we find in the New Covenant is we find the same God who is holy and just, righteous, good, merciful, and gracious. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He is infinite and eternal. This God is the God of heaven and earth, of of all things. So revealed to us here in Exodus 7 and on as we...
go through these plagues, we will find a better understanding of who this covenant God is. His, uh, his determination, or at least the necessity of him to deal with sin by his wrath, and yet his graciousness by which he still saves sinners deserving of his wrath. So let's look at our first, this first plague this morning. And let's address first, if we can, its purpose. We see from such passages as Numbers 33 in verse 4 that says that one of the main purposes of the ten plagues was to demonstrate the supremacy of Yahweh as compared to Egypt's false gods. It says in Numbers 33, while the Egyptians were bearing all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, the Lord had also executed judgments on their gods. We can see here that the Lord's intention was to display not just to the Egyptians, but actually especially to the Israelites, that, that all that they have come to know, the Israelites had, had, been, in, um, had been under captivity for uh, decades, and many, many years. And so they'd come accustomed to the ways of the Egyptian. They'd been accustomed to the ways in which the Egyptians worshipped their false gods, talked about their false gods. If they had any festivals, if they had any time in which there was special attention drawn to them, the Israelites would have been there and they would have been at the very least observers of it. And yet what we will find out is that the, over time, the Israelites weren't just observers of, these, of this false religion, but they were partakers of this false religion. So it was incumbent upon the Lord in order to deliver them that they not only be delivered physically, but that they would be delivered in some form psychologically from the, from the bounds that these false gods would have upon them so that they would have a sure hope in their covenant Lord. Except for the Nile Delta, Egyptians lived in a hostile environment. I've never been to Egypt myself, but if you kind of zoom out on Google Maps, you notice that there is this lush kind of band and this lush area of Egypt that borders uh, the, the Nile and actually goes beyond what we might consider natural borders because of the work of irrigation and such, and such modern uh, technologies as that or ancient technologies as the Egyptians were known to utilize such things. But outside of that, we see the harshness of the desert. It gets real dead real fast in Egypt. And what, what we can see is that if we look at that and can think about that theologically, we see that it is a product of the fall. The fall in which the ground was cursed by Adam such that it would not produce fruit, but it would be by the sweat of his brow that he would even toil over and get some scraps of food. So though the Nile was lush and, and uh, fertile and producing of fruits and producing of such things to sustain life, all around the Egyptians was this reality of the fall that in some ways, there, it was unsustainable, that there wasn't this earth-wide blessing of the Nile. But as a product also of the fall, not only in the harsh reality of their environment was their proclivity to chase after false gods, that they were turned from their, uh, 
uh, orientation in the garden, Adam and Eve's orientation in the garden, to worship the one true and living God, to worship everything but the one true and living God. And so they seek after these false gods, some of their own imagination, but what we find in uh, Paul's testimony is that these false gods were not uh, just physical, but there was a spiritual element to it in such that Paul, Paul says that in worshiping these gods, they're actually worshiping demons. And so you have this play of the fall interacting here in this very land of Egypt. And so if they're going to go after false gods, they're going to go after the natural revelation of ways, which is in the covenant of works. And so they're going to chase after them through, uh, through a covenant of work that they produce. So they have to appease these gods. They have to keep them happy. They have to make sure that they're pro- providing the proper sacrifice at the right time so that their gods don't get angry with them. And one of the gods that's highlighted here in our passage is the god of the Nile. There are other gods that were associated with the Nile, but the main god associated with the Nile uh, was Osiris. Osiris was uh, symbolized death, resurrection, and the cycle of the Nile. The cycle where the Nile flooded Egypt and then through that flooding provided for the agricultural fertility. So there was, a, there was a flooding of the water. It covered that part of the land. And as it receded, they would cultivate that land and they would find that it was agriculturally uh, rich. And so within that, they sought to worship this god Osiris by offering sacrifices daily sacrifices if they could to this god of the Nile and oftentimes they did so in the Nile but what we have in our passage where the blood is also turned in the pots of wood or the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone would not just be a testimony that every place where water was kept but probably every place where water was offered in tribute or sacrifice to Osiris in their homes And so in every place, the Lord extends his sovereign hand, his sovereign reach to show that this God is nothing compared to the God of the Hebrews here in relation to the Pharaohs, but nothing compared to Yahweh, the one true and living God. As I said, it was supposed that Pharaoh was going down to the water. Uh, He was going down to the water that morning to offer ritual prayers or pay homage or sacrifices to Osiris, that Pharaoh would be found, uh, would be known to be found there as the chief representative of all the Egyptians and also uh, a self-proclaimed God himself who is supposed to be some sort of descendant of, of Osiris. He goes down to offer his homage or offer his prayers And so it's on that ground that the Lord confronts Pharaoh and the people of Israel through the testimony of Moses and Aaron as to who Yahweh is. And this plague that comes upon uh, the Nile, it comes upon every uh, piece of the Nile, everywhere where the Nile existed, so this plague came upon it. 
It affects the Nile, which was an object regarded, as I've said, with profound veneration by the Egyptians. Its waters were held as sacred. A fearful blow then was it to their system of worship when its waters were turned to blood and its dead fish made to stink. That's an interesting comment and uh, interesting detail we get out of Scripture is that the fish die and then the Nile stinks. When in a previous chapter it said that the people of Israel had become odious to the Egyptians. They'd become a stench to the Egyptians. And here the Lord, knowing the hearts of men, converts their most highly prized object, which was their life, the, their lifeblood, pun intended, and he turns it into a stench for them. No, no longer could they gather water to drink from the shores of the Nile. No longer could they offer proper tribute and sacrifice or homage to their gods. No longer could they uh, pool sustenance in fish out of the Nile, for the Lord had struck it down with his mighty hand. It's interesting also that we find that this lasted for seven days. That's not without coincidence in God's word that the seven days here matches seven days of creation where we find that uh, in creation, God completes his creation in seven days. So here, the completion of the Lord's judgment upon this God and upon, the Is- upon Pharaoh and upon the Egyptians lasts for seven days. The Lord could have caused it to last for 40 days. Or some other uh, number that's not more significant in Scripture. But seven days was this lesson. For it was to be a complete lesson to both the Israelites and the Egyptians that the Lord God was the Lord above all things. The other thing that this uh, plague should have done, especially in the hearts of the Israelites, was to uh, be a striking prophetic forecast of God's future judgment upon the world. For what they were to see is that the Lord will one day judge that which had gone awry, that which had gone astray, that which has rebelled against his will in the garden and in the fall. The Lord will one day judge. And we have further testimony and revelation of this out of the book of Revelation in chapter 8, verse 8. Speaking of uh, these, uh, the seven trumpets. It says the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and a third of the ships were destroyed. This is repeated again in Revelation 16 as we will see. But this idea of the Lord's judgment coming upon the waters and them turning to blood is obviously in Revelation an allusion and a throwback to Exodus, but Exodus can serve in the same way to cast prophetic forecast upon the Lord's, um, the reality that the Lord will judge sin. There's no escape to the Lord's hand of judgment. Nobody can hide from the Lord, just like nobody could hide from this plague, all their pots. All the places that they held the Nile turned to blood. They, maybe, maybe they went and got to collect water that morning before Pharaoh, the, those that maybe went early 
the early risers, not me, but somebody else. They went and gathered and they brought it in and they're ready to make their broth or they're ready to knead their, their dough and use a little water and they go to dip their fingers in it and they find their hands are covered in blood. There was no way for them to escape except after a certain time when the magicians discovered that they could dig in the earth to, to, to garner some sort of water, to dig new wells, and then uh, so the people of Egypt mimicked them or followed after them that they dug around the Nile for water to drink. So they had to scrounge for their sustenance. But we recognize, though, in the uh, magician's retort, the, the magician's act in which they turn that water into blood, we must recognize what happens there. One, the magicians had to scrounge for water also. It wasn't that the magicians drew water out of the Nile, turned it into water, and then, okay, now I'm going to turn it back into blood. Magicians had to scrounge just like the regular Egyptians to find water and then by whatever the means, by their secret arts, produce blood or show it to be like blood. But what we recognize that those magicians don't do, as, as we who understand how the spirit of the Lord works now and is testified to in his New Testament, as we would uh, cast aspersions upon those that claim to be faith healers is that undo it all then. Why didn't the magicians just change the whole Nile and all the other water, all the other blood back into water? Because the futility of those that seek after God according to their own righteousness can never undo the wrath of God by their own righteousness, they only deepen it. So the, the magicians could only produce more blood. They could only produce more wrath of God and more judgment upon them. They couldn't undo it by their secret arts. So too is it the same for us. And so too would be in the demonstration for faithful Israelites to see that nothing according to God's judgments can be undone by the work of man's hand that it would be by the act of God that the waters of the Nile would be restored. So it is for our own spirits, that it would be by the act of God that the Lord would renew our spirits, change our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Who is like Yahweh? He's Lord over the molecular structure of water. He is certainly Lord over whatever structure and whatever uh, compositeness we have of our spirits and our hearts. And so by the, uh, by the raising of Christ, by a resurrected body now in the presence of God, we too have hope that not only as he renewed our spirit, will one day renew our bodies and not only one day renew, not as he has done renew our spirits and renew our bodies, but he will renew the earth. So we will find no more deserts of Egypt. All will flow like the Nile and provide fruit. Yet the river will come not out of Egypt. It will come out of Zion. And this should be a testimony to us as we look now and a lesson from this as we look at the portion of our Lord. Turn to Psalm 142.
It's a short psalm, so I'll, I'll read it in total. It says, I cry out with my voice to the Lord. I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. In the way where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. Here we have an illustration of what the Israelites, what the Egyptians should have been taught with the plague of the Nile. For nowhere could they look for help to have water to drink. They should have done as the psalmist does in verse 5. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutions, for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison, so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Robert Hawker says, What will not the Lord do for his people? Rather than Israel shall be any longer oppressed, Egypt shall be destroyed, and the noblest of rivers turned into blood. Oh, may you and I be found among those who have the Lord for their portion, and then we shall have no cause to fear, though the earth be moved and the hills carried into the midst of the sea. Dearest Jesus, undertake for me, for thou alone can answer for me, O Lord my God. Our portion is with the Lord. In our, before we were converted by God or as we're being converted as the Lord is aliving our hearts, we should have a moment where we found ourselves surrounded by our enemy, whether it was our own sin, where we see the brokenness of this world and, and then in turn see how we too are broken. We are to be crushed by this so that we call upon God that he would give heed to our cry, that he would deliver us. He would bring our souls out of prison. And the Lord says that we can be, that he can be our portion in the land of the living. It was the land of death in Egypt during that plague. The Lord is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. Not of who they were, but of the living Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who dwell with the Lord in eternal bliss. And so we wait for the redemption of all things, yet sinners only await judgment. We know the end of the ten plagues. The Egyptians and Pharaoh were only awaiting Judgment, yet the Israelites were awaiting their redemption. So for us, if we are to have hope in anything, it's to be it's the hope in the Lord that we would be waiting for redemption, the redemption of all things, and that we would put off that we are not waiting judgment, for that fell upon another. A.W. Pink in commenting on this says all that the law can do. 
to its guilty transgressors is to sentence him to death. And this is what the water turned into blood symbolized. But by the incarnate word, the believing sinner is made to rejoice. And this is what the turning of water into wine speaks of. Here, the first plague is water into blood to talk about God's judgment, to demonstrate God's judgment upon the Egyptians, upon Pharaoh, but ultimately upon sin. So the first miracle of Christ is that he turns water into wine, not proclaiming God's judgment, but proclaiming God's power to make life where it doesn't exist. For it says wine makes the heart glad in the Proverbs. This is to demonstrate us that there is none who can be beside our Lord. Deuteronomy 4, verses 33 through 35. Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has God tried to go to take for himself a nation from another nation by trials, by signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. This demonstration to the Israelites is for them to be sure There is no God of the Nile. There is no God to be appeased and to be worshipped according to that covenant of works. There is only Yahweh. There is only the one who was to graciously bring them into the land who was doing so there in Deuteronomy. And so for us, typologically, for us to see that apart from Christ, we are captive in Israel, needing of God's deliverance. Apart from Christ, All we draw out of the Nile of life is blood. And it should be a stench to us. So that we would see the Lord, his mighty hand and outstretched arm. And be delivered from such judgment. Who is like Yahweh? Finally, we address prayer. For as we come before all these things, we can praise God. And prayer. Finally, in this we find a renewed sense. Hopefully, we find a renewed sense of prayer. The plagues were a demonstration of God's omnipotent power. Oh, that we wouldn't be like the Israelites. Oh, how often we are. Psalm 78, verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again, they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. The day when he redeemed them from the adversary, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan and turned their rivers to blood and their streams, they could not drink. Brothers and sisters who have been redeemed by Christ, do not forget the power of God that brought you out of darkness into light and changed your Nile of blood, not just into water, but into new and living wine by the blood of Christ. So we see the wisdom of our Lord when he taught his disciples how to pray. Turn with me to Matthew chapter six. Let us see this. 
in God's Word. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9, he's instructing his disciples. They ask him, how do we pray? He doesn't tell them what to pray, although this can be prayed as a what, but he teaches them how to pray. And so it becomes for us uh, a test, uh, a, a template as it is and in, in how we ought, ought to pray and what we ought to pray for, what should be on our mind when we come before our Lord. He says, pray then in this way, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. When we come across the Lord's Prayer, we see these principles given to us that we are to uphold the name of God in our hearts. We uphold the name of God by remembering his wonders that he has wrought in our hearts, the wonders that he continues to do in our life. We uphold the name of our God when we call upon his kingdom to come and his will to be done as we seek to obey him according to his law. We extol the name of God when we recognize it is by his hand that we receive our daily provision. And this is not just bread to eat. This is bread for our souls found in his word, enriched by his spirit to our hearts, given to us in prayer, given to us in song as we sing together corporately, privately, and in our families. And then that we would ask in light of all that, we would see where we are forgetful people, forgetting the power of God and so needing his forgiveness and and needing his power to work in us forgiveness for others, that we would not be led into temptation, but be delivered from evil. Alex Mottier says we, might prefer the bliss of a kingdom of God without moral absolutes, presided over by a God without wrath, and entered through a Christ without a cross. But the price for this would be to discard not just this or that bit of the Bible, as we see the wrath of God coming upon the Egyptians through this first plague, but the whole God-given book, for in it God has revealed his absolutes, And that he is a God of intense, fiery holiness. And that Jesus died bearing our sins in his body on the cross. For that is what sin merits. And saving us from the wrath to come. For that is where sin leads. If the plagues begin with the disasters sin brings, they lead inexorably to the death with which sin ends, with which sin ends. For the believer, the plagues lead to redemption. For those still captive in Egypt, they lead to disaster. We want God to defeat our enemies. But what if the Lord by his sovereign hand intends that through life's trials, 
it's to show that our sins are to become a stench to us. That we are able to see that as we draw to him in prayer, we are to proclaim that he is above all. That he is holy above all. And his kingdom is to be sought through grateful obedience to his law. And his loving provision is found every day. Who is like Yahweh? Let's pray. O Lord, what wonders you have done to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And as wonderful as it seems to think uh, all the waters of the Nile turning into blood and the many other plagues that will come upon them, as wonderful and awe-inspiring as that is, it is more a wonder that those who deserve your wrath and punishment can be made friends can be adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High, can dwell with you as you are. O Lord, that we would know this power through faith in Christ, that this power would produce in us hope to endure, that our sins would be such a stench to us, We thank you, Lord, for your word, for your spirit that abides through it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.